Welcome to Policy Insights, a podcast produced for the University of Southern Queensland's Master of Business Administration. I'm Dr. Daniel Maddock, a digital pedagogy and media specialist and part of the MBA design team. In this podcast series, we talk to leaders from a variety of industries about organisational policy and the processes involved in developing, implementing, evaluating and communicating changes and updates to policy effectively. These interviews were recorded via the internet, so please keep this in mind as you listen to this episode. Nia Yari Giam, Jaganba, Na Gayabu, Yarrawa Peoples, Nia Toowoomba. This podcast is recorded on the traditional lands of the Giabul and Yarrawa peoples in a place called Toowoomba. Our guest for this episode has had a successful career in government working across multiple jurisdictions, starting with the New Zealand government in the mid-1990s. Currently, Jeff is a senior executive with the Queensland government where he leads tourism industry development, ensuring Queensland has the infrastructure, connectivity and strategic positioning it needs to sustain and grow its tourism industry. With the impacts of COVID-19, that's been no mean feat. Jeff's department has helped Queensland tourism businesses survive and begin to recover during this difficult period. And, of course, this has all been accomplished on the back of solid organisational and governmental policy. Jeff McAllister, welcome to the show. Thanks, it's great to be with you today. Jeff, can you tell the listeners a little bit about your current role and working for the government Sure. So I work in government, so it's all about public policy. So that's what we do for the public benefit. And I think um, in terms of some of the listeners out there, that makes government an incredibly attractive and rewarding place to work, especially in the current moment um, for people who want to make a real difference, contribute to the betterment of our state and our country. Uh, For example, in terms of my current role leading uh, Queensland tourism industry development, I guess I'd say the overarching policy for the tourism sector in Queensland is helping businesses to respond and recover uh, from the COVID-19 impacts to protect jobs across our state. And just reflecting back on my time in government with different governments, uh, a lot has changed in terms of how policy development has done. So when I started in the early 1990s with the New Zealand government, at that time, and not just in New Zealand, but around the world, government ran a whole lot more things. So you had a lot more government-directed, government-led policy and less consultation. And um, these days when I look around, I don't think governments hold as many levers, and that's as a result, I guess, governments got out of some businesses through things like privatisation. Other operations have been outsourced to NGOs. So both formally and functionally, nowadays government has to work a lot more with our external partners. And also at the same time, I think there's just a much greater expectation by the community that there is community input into public policy making. And so that makes, I guess, for us, it can be challenging. It's a much less linear, much less well-organised policy environment maybe than it used to be. Um, And I think, you know, I've seen through uh, my time a period where there was a big push um, from stakeholders for increased transparency in public policy making and um, governments responded to that. There's a lot more information out there in the public arena now about um, government and public policy, releases of discussion papers, open data, the right to information provisions that people have available. But interestingly, I've found actually so over the last 10 years with the rise of social media, despite having all of that information out there, um, debate about public policy in the public arena is actually seems to be less detailed the way I see it and less based maybe in all of the facts and data and evidence. Um, and, you know, we see in social media, I guess, 
policy framed um, in much um, simpler, fast terms. And I don't know if it's a case of, you know, the old um, saying, um, there's sort of two things that you don't want to see being made, sausages and law. So um, it, it, has, it has changed significantly in terms of the way um, I see policy framed publicly these days. That's very interesting. So what we're looking at is, is some time ago, policy, especially in government, used to be a top-down thing where it was made from the top, maybe with an executive board. But today you're saying that, especially in government, there's a lot of back and forth between different organisations, stakeholders, but, but also, of course, the community, because everybody who votes is a stakeholder. That's it, absolutely. And so in terms of, I think, just in my own experience, you know, how we can be successful in our public policy making effort um, amidst this increasingly complex contest of ideas that surrounds us is is absolutely co-design. I'm like I was saying, I think, you know, media has multiplied. People have such easy access these days to government and key decision makers. And as you were saying before, Daniel, when I started in government, government had much more of a single lead. Um, Departments now don't have a monopoly on the advice that's provided to ministers as the key um, decision makers. There's a lot of other capable organisations out there in the public policy arena, you know, plethora of think tanks, some of them very well resourced, almost like quasi-government departments, a lot of advocacy groups, um, NGOs. So, you know, the politicians are facing a lot more um, contestability of ideas, a much more uh, intense um, media um, environment um, through so- social media has really accelerated the speed of the media cycle. And so I, I you know, think government does need to be a lot more responsive and faster to respond. So while we're not the only source of advice to government, I do think what the public service um, still brings um, in terms of real public benefit as policymakers is that anchoring a really strong governance. Um, we can bring just in terms of, I guess, the scale um, that we have those really deep insights and capability that you know often um, those really difficult, complex issues maybe about the the future um, of our state to ensure that the full array of options are scoped and considered based on evidence and facts. But um, yeah, without um, uh, a monopoly as we might have had in days gone by, um, I think absolutely the the best approach is is co-designed to policy um, with um, all of our stakeholders. Um, right from the start. And as well as being more collaborative externally, I also think um, we need to be much more collaborative internally. This goes to what I was saying before, I guess, around when government was a lot larger, things were more linear, government held a lot more of the levers. It might have been things could be dealt with within one portfolio. And now I think um, with, you know, this recent upheaval, and if you think about, you know, the future and disruption, the really big social and economic policy issues facing governments really run across multiple portfolios. So if you think of things like child poverty, homelessness, climate change. So, you know, as a public servant, if, you were, if you're thinking about how you make a difference and achieve outcomes in big areas like that, as opposed to outputs, you really need to be able to work successfully across what we call the machinery of government. So, how you might be able to align policies in multiple portfolios under those really big strategic priorities. The difficulty still structurally um, is governments are organised largely along vertical lines. So you have a series of portfolios and there's a good reason for that. Um, it's, it goes to how we are funded and you need accountability for taxpayers 
fund um, through a, a strong management line. Um, and also yeah, another difficulty faces just as in any organisation, practically, I guess, the level of interest in collaboration invariably tends to waver and vary the further you get from the uh, resourcing. So I do think it's worth um, government and a lot of organisations, I guess, that are organised like this, thinking about how we might be able to have more shared resourcing pools that underpin and are available to support initiatives around those really big strategic challenges of our time. The broader consultation that you speak of for today, that must make it a lot more difficult than, say, it used to be when it was a decision made in a boardroom. Creating policy today must take a long time. Uh, Well, yes and no. And so I was going to talk about, um, share with you, I guess, what I think was a watershed for working in government, COVID-19, when it hit um, last year. So in terms of things taking a long time, there was not a long time to respond to COVID-19. And also, I think, um, you know, we had seen, you know, just in terms of a long-term trend, a declining level of um, public trust and confidence in government. And I think, um, you know, in terms of a major crisis, we've really seen how competent management by governments around the world has really shifted that trend. You know, just speaking personally and what I've seen from my own team here in our department, an incredibly rewarding time um, to be a public servant in terms of what I talked about right at the start, how we want to be here to make a difference and for the betterment of our society. Um, Last year, we're in my department, we're rolling up our sleeves to help businesses in really major distress and individuals. You know, this is people whose jobs are on the line, help them navigate through some of those terms of long um, timeframes. They were incredibly fast um, and hard-hitting impacts that the pandemic um, threw up. I mean, I'd say for me anyway, in terms of having started in government in the 1990s, it's the biggest crisis um, I have seen governments face. You know, we've heard all the superlatives. Um, And we realised in government, I think, that we had to put the rule book to one side, just roll up our sleeves and get on with it, do what was needed to help um, businesses and keep those jobs alive. So as well as just, you know, almost overnight waiving things like fees, providing grants to businesses because we knew that they were in an incredibly tight squeeze with their cash flow. There was just quick changes to things like regulations. So when we were in lockdown, you had restaurants providing takeout meals and normally they can't provide takeout alcohol as well. So that was something that was quickly allowed in terms of trying to keep businesses afloat, reflecting what was an emergency um, lockdown environment. And just when I reflect on my own team in terms of fast and, you know, some of the impacts um, internally. So I had a team that was very used to doing stakeholder engagement in terms of some of that sort of policy development effort that I talked about before, but more at a strategic level around program development for a term of government for, you know, three four years. So for COVID-19, we really switched to operational crisis support, and it's not something that, you know, my team was used to. Stakeholder engagement became last year for us, um, listening on the phone to um, tourism operators in really major distress, people who were going through hell as their markets were turned off. And I'm so proud of how my team um, stood up and um, really stayed together throughout that big challenge and kept going all of last year and even sort of into this year, unfortunately, with more lockdowns um, and despite not being trained in this kind of um, frontline crisis support. And I think now in terms of maybe you sort of talked about the longer time frames. well, um, as the situation slowly normalises, there is an opportunity, I think, for government now to think about, reflect back with stakeholders what worked incredibly well last year and how we might be able to preserve some of that flexibility. 
and the way that we were able to work and be so responsive to our stakeholders um, and how we can take that forward in a more normal operating environment. Jeff, given that background, how would you describe the role of policy? I sort of see, I guess, you know, over the longer term that I've had in government, three different areas of policy. So, um, and maybe flipping a little bit from what I was talking about with COVID-19, it was, you know, very unusual emergency situation. So I guess, you know, you've got regular policy within um, government. So stakeholders have ongoing interactions with government. We're doing it day in, day out. Um, you know, through getting out, particularly in Queensland for tourism, our regions are really important. And so people are raising things regularly, either face-to-face or through correspondence with departments and with their elected representatives. And so government then begins a policy development process when, you know, an issue um, is clearly emerging. You'd have one department leading, engaging with the other departments. Like I said, you know, in this day and age, rarely is one sort of issue contained neatly within our portfolio lines. Then you have, you know, discussion papers um, going out, consultation with stakeholders. The department will draft a policy, test it with, um, with a minister, ministers or with cabinet, depending on the significance and more stakeholder consultation, then you have a you know, discussion papers released, or if it's you know legislative or regulatory, you're talking about um, bills going through um, parliament. So that's sort of what I'd call you know regular ongoing policy development. Um, then maybe another term could be big policy, and you know um, I'm talking about there. I guess what we see through elections. You know we had the Queensland election. Last year, we've probably got an election at the federal level coming in the next um, 12 months. This is when I say big policy, maybe more top down, um, where through elections and campaigns, you have political parties um, making election commitments in response to the issues that are raised with them by their different constituencies. And then these are then implemented um, as election commitments by the public service um, over the term of government. Um, and then um, in terms of, you know, governments, I said, don't have a monopoly on public policy making anymore. But one thing where I think we probably do have a unique advantage just in terms of the scale that we can bring to bear is those, is those sort of big future issues. Um, and that comes from, I guess, that sort of continuity and re- real depth and in institutional knowledge that you have in government. So I'd call that deep policy. And that's a role for government bottom up. Um, so you've got, you know, public servants have been across issues, whether it's social or economic policy for, for years, if not decades, um, where government probably needs to lead. Um, and you have a public service looking really strategically at, you know, what society, what our economy needs um, into the future and some new ways, perhaps, um, through innovation of addressing what becomes systemic and tractable issues, could be, like I said, social or economic. You know, this is going to start bottom up. Um, this deep policy with some, you know, public servants um, scoping different options, wide-ranging engagement um, consultation to formulate advice that is always then going to be rigorous, rigorously tested. So in terms of, you know, long timeframes, that's an example, and that's about, you know, um, positioning our state to be successful into the future. And I, I think, you know, to be a successful policymaker in government, you need to be looking at all of those three things, your regular policymaking, Um, that big policy that could be coming down the pipeline through um, political processes and that really deep policy um, to make sure that um, you are 
um, not in reactive mode, I think, which is the challenge um, that you, know, um, you can face in government if, if you're not really attuned to what's happening in your operating environment and it's constantly scanning the landscape. You mentioned strategy there, uh, and it sounds to me that policy has a very strong link with strategy. So are you looking at what outcomes you need to achieve and then going back to planning the policy? Uh, yes, in some ways, and maybe I thought it might be useful to share an example of um, in terms of policy and strategy where one came unstuck um, in my career, and this is a little earlier, I was actually working in South America for the New Zealand government um, under the Conservative um, National Party, which had a policy of, um, in terms of, sorry, I would call it a strategy of growing returns to the New Zealand economy, not just by exports, which is the traditional way of earning foreign exchange from overseas economic um, partners, um, but also through encouraging New Zealand firms to expand overseas. And this might be where New Zealand being a small economy would think a little differently in terms of getting your firms not just to create jobs in your own economy, but to look at expansion because there are inherent constraints based on the size of your economy um, by expanding into overseas economies where maybe there is also some efficiencies in terms of, you know, the costs of production and the availability of input. So the New Zealand government was very strongly encouraging New Zealand firms at the time to get um, more involved in global value chains. And what I was doing in South America was looking at how we might be able to extend New Zealand's agribusiness production and processing capability, particularly around dairy, through much greater involvement in South American agribusiness operations. Uh, And so what happened here was um, I came up against a major change. That was the strategy and so the policy was that I was helping New Zealand businesses um, integrate into Brazil through joint ventures, um, through um, licensing, through direct New Zealand investment in um, production, acquisition of farms and um, dairy processing operations in Brazil, when suddenly out of the blue, the Brazilian government introduced a ban on foreign ownership of agricultural land. So that um, was a major hindrance to our strategy in terms of becoming a major milk producer um, in Brazil. And Um, This was actually a a Brazilian government um, reaction to concerns by Brazilians that other countries were buying up very large tracts of agricultural land in Brazil and potentially locking up um, food resources for the future. So clearly the New Zealand government and New Zealand corporate engagement and investment was not the target, but we were the unintended consequence. And so a policy that we thought was actually mutually beneficial for both Um, New Zealand and for our Brazilian partners suddenly got caught up in some contention and domestic political debate. So uh, we needed to really sharpen and differentiate our policy from those of others um, that were causing concern politically for some constituencies in Brazil. And what I did was really embark on selling that New Zealand government policy to Brazilian government decision makers, to um, industry partners over there, and to different stakeholder groups, and trying to articulate much more clearly how it was mutually beneficial, something that we thought was implicit and assumed how New Zealand firms were bringing new technology into Brazil in terms of um, dairy production on farm technologies, how they were creating jobs 
um, in Brazilian rural areas. They were improving the quality of Brazilian milks. It was at the same standard as New Zealand milk. We had capacity building programs for Brazilian farmers and we were integrating them into New Zealand global dairy supply chain. So new export opportunities for Brazilian firms as well. And I think maybe the lesson here that I learned through that experience was how the political context in terms of needing to remain very attuned to what's going on around you, um, and in this case, I think it was probably geopolitical, how it can change quite quickly and impact your strategy. Um, but if it is built on a solid basis as our was, as ours was, um, and we were dealing much more with in collateral damage of a policy um, intended to change the behaviour of others, um, with strong stakeholder engagement and support, which we did and I was able to rally around us, um, a strategy and a policy can still survive that level of disruption. That's a very interesting story there. And it's interesting to see that that just came across uh, your desk fairly promptly. It wasn't something you, you weren't negotiated on this point that a policy was going to come across from Brazil. It just appeared one day and then you had to sort of work with the government to um, reverse the process that the, the, the effect it had on New Zealand. Yeah, absolutely. I guess in terms of governments needing to be reactive, we talked a little bit about that before in terms of how rapid the media cycle is and in terms of issues that, you know, a constituent might raise suddenly how they can magnify and governments need to respond. And that became, you know, the acquisition of um, rural land um, by overseas interests just became a very big political issue for the Brazilian government. And it was a very um, swift um, and um, in some respects, blunt um, response. Um, and so that's where we really needed to, as I was saying, sort of differentiate um, within that Brazilian government environment, the policy that we were setting out to um, achieve and the benefits that we could you know, quite concretely point to that we were helping deliver in, in Brazilian rural areas that really needed the level of development that we could help them uh, create. Jeff, what advice would you give to a new person, one of our students, for instance, graduating the MBA program and moving into leadership and maybe even eventually senior leadership about the importance of understanding the policy landscape within an organisation? Yeah, so um, absolutely. I think um, as we've been talking about this morning, um, you do need to be so attuned to your operating environment. So I guess that's what's going on around you and depending on the scope of your remit, it may be quite local, that could be at a state level, could be national, could be international, as I talked about with that um, Brazilian investment issue, you know, it's a, that was a geopolitical um, issue. You do need to be attuned to your operating environment and then also your, what I would call your authorising environment. So your government will have a strategic direction that may shift um, during the course of a government term. Um, you need to be very clear around sort of what might be within government appetite um, as you do your work. And I guess I talked about too, so that you don't end up being reactive, that, um, and often it does feel like, you know, somebody, somebody who has to juggle a lot of balls, that regular ongoing policy, just because, you know, um, life changes, as we know, um, it's changed a lot in the last um, 12 to 18 months um, for everybody around the world. Um, so governments do need to make sure that policies are always fit for purpose. That's what I call regular policy. Then you've got that big policy coming down the pipeline that often comes through the electoral cycle. So there are the issues that are going to bubble up from constituents and get into the political um, system. 
and um, you will have um, announcements uh, made by politicians that need to be implemented by public servants. And then I think there's also a responsibility for government and maybe that area where I said maybe perhaps you know, the public service still has a unique role to play of trying to help position society and the economy for the future. And that was the deep policy that I talked about, that sort of thinking insights, you know, and the facts-based evidence, the research and data that, you know, the public service can bring to bear to put out options to stakeholders, to government, thinking, you know, the 5, 10, 15-year um, horizons around what, what the different pathways might be to get to where we want to be. Um, in the future. Some extremely informative insights there. Jeff McAllister, thank you very much for your time on the show today. You're very welcome. Thank you. Information about our guests can always be found in the podcast show notes in your podcast app or on the course site. This has been a University of Southern Queensland podcast produced by the Office for the Advancement of Learning and Teaching.